You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. We are going to continue in worship as we turn to God's Word. So head to the book of Romans and chapter 9. If you've not been with us and you're visiting, we're halfway, aren't we, through a study of Romans, and we are in chapter 9, and we are moving moving along. So look up Romans 9. Um, we'll read just the first few verses in a minute. As you're going there, I've got a picture from last week from Tatum. I had a lot of good pictures, but Tatum's picture pulled out of the little cup of guys I need to pick from, and, and so... We, he was looking at, last, even last week, we saw this at the end of Romans 8, that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come, Tatum's got it, God, we are with God. Nothing shall separate us from him. So thank you, Tatum, for that. And thank you for the rest. Check them out on your way out, or if you go out this door, just swing that way, check your mailbox, look at the pictures that are there, and uh, just some, some great pictures that you guys are coming up with as, as we work through this. So, all right, well, hopefully you're in Romans 9 now. Your Bible maybe turns to Romans 8 easily. Uh, we're just right beyond 8, just in the first few verses. Let me read verses 1 through 5 as we begin Romans 9. Let's listen to God's Word. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord once more as we think on this. Lord, I just do pray that you would guide our time as we study your word. What a gift you have given us of your entire word. And though there be parts that are hard to understand, how many places, how much, 66 books of truth and promise and covenant and salvation in Christ, and we get to study it this morning. Thank you. Thanks for these words of encouragement. Thanks for what we see here in even these five verses and in these chapters that may at times make our heads scratch. Lord, grant us understanding that we may truly glorify your name in all things. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, we're in chapter 9, and we're going to eventually get to Romans 12, some of the practical applications of Romans as we get to chapter 12 and following. But for now, we're in these chapters 9 and 10 and 11, and they seem to form one unit within this letter. And so I'm treating them as a unit. They're going to touch on some themes, similar themes on Israel. We're going to touch on that. We're going to touch on the Gentiles and God's sovereignty over all, all things. And questions are going to surface 
here as we look through these three chapters? Does Israel, the people of Israel, do do they still have a place as the people of God? Or another question, maybe have the Gentiles replaced Israel? They're kind of like, Israel's now out, now it's the Gentiles' turn at being people of God. Or there's questions of God's sovereign election of individuals, that he's got mercy on some and then hardening the hearts of others. Paul asks a penetrating question, verse 21 of chapter 9, where he says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And so we're going to see this back and forth, back and forth of works and faith, Israel and Gentile, God's calling, God's will. But by the end of the unit, and as maybe we're prone to do is is to look at the last part of this unit. And to do that, I want you to go to chapter 11, verse 33. I think there's a wonderful summary here of this unit that's worth keeping in mind even as we start back in chapter 9. So if you look at chapter 11, verse 33, we read there at the end of this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unscrutable, inscrutable His ways. And so I'm going to use this line of Paul here, how inscrutable His ways, kind of as a, a series title throughout to really point us to the fact that though, though God's ways are inscrutable, or you could say in, they're incomprehensible to us at times, God remains, He remains definitively purposefully the one who orders all things. He is the potter, and he has a right to do whatever he wills, as hard as that may be for us to understand. And so it's here we must say with Paul, then, as he continues in verses 34 and 35, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has, been given, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. So we do not, we cannot counsel God. We don't know all of His mind. And He really doesn't owe us any explanation. But He does. We have His Word. But essentially, verse 36 then really explains so much. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And so Paul ends, to him be glory forever. What a great place to end this unit, that as we get into the nuts and bolts and Israel, Gentiles, God, sovereignty, election, all these things, that in the end we say glory be to God, that we worship him. That's where all things are to flow. It's where our life is to flow. It's where all creation flows to his glory, declaring it. And so we want to do that here. But as we begin chapter 9, and we'll get to verse 1 in just a moment, but we begin, it, it seems like a pretty abrupt change from where we have been in the Airbnb, this nicest of all rooms, Romans chapter 8. So in Romans 8, you know, there's the we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We've got the nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ. And now Paul's in anguish and great sorrow over his people, the Israelites. And the great truths, I think, of chapter 8 don't seem so true for Israel. There's one author, I'll probably refer to him throughout as we study this section, David Halwerda. 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name right, but he explains the connection this way. Listen to what he says as we come out of chapter 8 and then into 9. He says, when Paul looks away from Christ, chapter 8, to the reality of Jewish unbelief, it's kind of where we're at here, he goes on to say, Jewish Israel was the original object of election, the recipient of numerous blessings and privileges. But now, in the presence of Jesus and the gospel, most did not believe. So the question, is election such a sure thing? If Israel can apparently fall away, what happens to Christian confidence in God's electing love in Christ? And the certainty expressed in Romans 8 stands in jeopardy. And Doug Moo calls it here, as we look at Israel, calls it the problem of Israel. Saying this, the Jews, recipients of so many privileges, that's what we're going to see in verses 4 and 5, are not experiencing the salvation offered in Christ. That's implied in verses 1 through 3. They are the objects of God's electing love, yet from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies. So has God's election, has it failed? Has God's plan failed? Has his word failed? And I think in your mind you would say, no. And verse 6 would agree. Paul's going to say, no, the word of God has not failed. And we're going to look more at that as we go on next week. But however inscrutable they may be, God's ways and purposes and election are sure. They're sure for his own, both of Israel and of the Gentiles. All right, so now we're ready to just come into these five verses. And let's head there and look at Paul's emphatic statement in verse 1. Look at what he says again in verse 1. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Of course, Paul here, he's preempting what he's going to say in verses 2 and 3. He says, essentially, I'm, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. Whatever it is that Paul is about to say, he's saying, I'm not making this up. This is not fake. This is not false. And I want to cover just briefly just two questions. There could be more things I'm not covering here, but two questions coming out of this verse. Number one, why such an emphasis on the truth? Why is Paul so adamant to say, I'm speaking the truth, I'm not lying, my conscience bears witness? Why such emphasis? Again, I think Paul wants, he wants to make sure what he is about to say, he's not being fake, he's not being false. One commentary pointed out um, that Paul, he's, kind of, he's known for his mission to who? To the, to the Gentiles. And so maybe he wants to truly affirm, truly affirm his own love for his own people, the Israelites. And as we're going to see in verse 2, Paul is, he is legitimately, he's truthfully, his conscience in sync with the Spirit, he is genuinely concerned for his people. Truly, he is. Question number two, though, why does Paul need to say he speaks the truth in Christ? Is, he, is Paul kind of, you know, swearing, like, I swear I'm telling the truth by Christ? I don't, I don't think so, but why, why does Paul add this in Christ phrase here? Well, if you know Paul, this phrase in Christ, it's common in his writing on his lips. He greets fellow workers in Christ. To the uh, Corinthians, he says, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Or he says to the Jew or Greek, You are all one in Christ Jesus. 
So many ways Paul connects his being in Christ to his life, which, which goes along with one of, I mean, just such a wonderful verse that really shows Paul's heart, Philippians 1.21 that says, in part, for to me to live is Christ. Paul's life is in Christ. Everything about Paul is Christ. John Murray writes this, of this saying for, for Paul here, of this in Christ. He says for Paul, union with Christ is the orbit within which his emotions move and the spring from which they proceed. That just, that's a great line. I'll read it again. Union with Christ is the orbit within which Paul's, his, emotions move and the spring from which they proceed. Thus the thing spoken of as the truth derives its impulse and the guarantee of its propriety from this union. Let me put it in simpler ways. Whether Paul is walking or he's teaching or he's living, he's working or he's speaking the truth, in all Paul does, it is all done in Christ. By way of application, is that how you would characterize your own life or my life? Is it in Christ shoveling snow? Not today. Could come again. Dealing with conflict on your way to work, at work, coming home from work, in this place or that place. May we imitate, let me encourage you, and us, in my own heart, to imitate Paul, for to me to live is Christ. All right, well, what is the truth then? Verse 1, what is the truth? Paul is so adamant that we know he is telling the truth. That comes in verses 2 and 3, where he says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul does not just have sorrow or grief, but he has, and the Greek here is megale, or you can hear in there, mega. He has mega grief. You've got the word, at least in the ESV, great sorrow. And not only great sorrow, he has continual, you see it, continual, unceasing anguish for his people this grief it's both so it's deep and and wide if you if you use that song it's there's deep sorrow for his people and it, it's lat, it's not just a momentary boy that's that's too bad well what barnabas what do we got going on tomorrow you know it's this it's just it's deep it's unceasing anguish for his people we're going to see, again, I've already mentioned it, his people, that where this grief is aimed at, his fellow kinsmen, the Israelites. And they're anything but believers of the Christ whom Paul loves and preaches, at least in mind here. They do have all the things of God, and yet they lack God in Christ himself. And Paul really grieves, I think, because they are cut off from Christ. He's grieving for their lack of Christ in their lives. Which again, by way of application, I wonder if some, maybe many of you, can relate really well to Paul. To Paul in verse 2. Maybe there is sorrow for a family member of yours to know Christ. It's deep and it's lasting. Or there's a close friend 
Or maybe there's sorrow for you as a child for your parent or parents. Or parents, a sorrow for your children. You have experienced, you experienced the wonder of Christ. You see Him in the Scripture. You love Him. But for this other person, it's like they just don't know Him or they've ran away from Him. Verse 2 is an encouragement to our hearts, I think. Maybe you don't see it. It doesn't say it in there. And so all of you be encouraged. Who is speaking this? Who is in great anguish? The same one, the same apostle that wrote, don't be anxious about anything, and the same apostle that said, rejoice always. That same apostle, Paul, what do you think, Paul, he's got it all together. He does, and he's in great sorrow and anguish. Be comforted. You're in line with Paul. And he's in anguish over the lack of Christ in the lives of his own relatives, his own people. His grief is so much, verse 3, that he lays out a wish, a longing, and a desire. He longs for his own being accursed, his own being cut off for the sake of his brothers according to the flesh. He, He says here he would rather be accursed. It's where we get the word anathema. If you've ever heard that word before, anathema. It's the, it's, it's the idea of being cursed, being contemned, the, or condemned. The Old Testament way uh, would be devoted to destruction. Paul has just highlighted, again, chapter 8, the wonders of our oneness of Christ. There is no separation. And yet here, for the sake of his kin, kinsmen, Paul seems eager to be separated on their behalf. Which is why, maybe that's, that's so like jolting, that's why maybe he spent verse 1 saying, I am telling the truth. I'm not lying here. I would rather be. Now we know that's not possible. We know chapter 8, even verses 31 through 39, have just proved you can't, Paul cannot be separated from Christ. But it's this desire. Doug, Ru, Doug Moo writes here regarding what's implied. He says, the strength of... Um, Paul's language here and elsewhere makes sense only if he sees his kindred's failure to believe in Christ as putting them outside the scope of God's salvation. And here we're reading a little deeper into the text, not making up the text, but just what is really going on. This is Paul Paul being willing to be separated, accursed for his kinsmen because they are separated. They are, in fact, cut off. And they, these Israelites, in general, not, not all, but they stand, those that are not claiming Christ, they stand accursed and condemn themselves. One question here, why? why? Why is Paul so willing to be accursed in their place? I have three, three answers to this. Maybe there's more. One we've kind of already, I think, looked at. Number one, wh- why, why is Paul willing Because he loves his people. Those Israelites that are remaining in sin without Christ, they are eternally condemned. They are devoted to destruction. This is Paul's family according to the flesh, and he loves them. And it's been pointed out, there's a parallel here. This is so cool. As you're reading through, again, plug for if you don't have a Bible reading plan and I don't know where to go, pick up a yellow copy begin heading through. We're in, I think today is Exodus 16, I believe, 15. You're going to read about what I'm just about to say in Exodus. 
But as we look back, there's a connection to Moses, of Paul and even Moses. In, you can just think back, you don't have to look back there, but Exodus 32, it's in light of Israel's sin and that incident with that golden calf. You can read about it. Moses says this to the Lord with that, I think, in mind. He says, but now, if you will forgive their sin. It's kind of like Moses is asking for, their, for God's pardon on this sin. And yet Moses says, but if not, says Moses, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Like Moses is willing to go in the place of Israel. Now, we see the ultimate fulfillment of this in the place, in the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. This love of Christ who dies in the place of sinners. And here, I think, in a similar way, Paul loves his people, and he's, he's willing, and we know it can't actually happen, but he's willing to be cut off for their sake. It's really a Christ-like attitude. That's number one, he loves his people. Number two, salvation history, so now we're talking about history, seems interrupted. Uh, Doug Moo writes this, and he's writing an introduction to this, I think, the entire section here. But he kind of makes this point. He says, as the rehearsal of Israel's privileges in verses 4 and 5 make clear, we'll look at that in just a little bit here. He says, Paul is also concerned that Israel's unbelief has ruptured the continuous course of salvation history. The people promised so many blessings have, it seems, been disinherited. And Moose says it will be Paul's task to show that this is not the case. And so Paul is concerned, as Moose says, he's concerned for this history of salvation. Is God just suddenly done with the people of Israel? And number three, I think again, maybe implied as, we, as, you, just, as you think through this, that the glory and honor of God are at stake. And here again, David Hallwarda, he's going to write, so the glory and honor of God is at stake Paul wishes to be accursed. Could it be for the sake of God's glory? Halwerda writes this. He says, Paul's offer was not motivated merely by ethnic or racial identity, by solidarity with his own people. Rather, like Moses, Paul was motivated by concern for the honor of the God who had chosen Israel. How would the honor of God, who is always faithful to his promise, be maintained in the face of an unbelieving Israel? And again, we see this in Moses. If you go further back in Exodus 32, Moses pleads, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses says this, Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he, that is God, did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Okay? Moses is he's concerned about the honor of what God has done. Verse 13, Moses pleads regarding God's promise. He says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses and I think Paul, they are concerned with God's honor and God's word being maintained. Well, again, the last phrase of verse 3 
clues us in, tells us the spiritual condition of those Paul has in mind. They are according to the flesh. We just got out of Romans 8. There are those that live according to the flesh, those that live according to the Spirit. These Paul is talking about here, they are not brothers in the Spirit. They're rather brothers in the flesh. Related, relatives, people, groups. They've not, they're not, in fact, believers in Christ. They've actually rejected Christ. From here, though, verses 4 and then into 5, Paul lists out the blessings of Israel. Read them here in verse 4. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. And certain commentators see, including my own, just the ESV study Bible here. Maybe you have one of those. You see the the column down in your notes. If you look at verse 4 down there, they see a parallel list here. So I don't have it up here for you, but adoption is related to um, the law, the giving of the law. Let me do it this way so you're not reading backwards. Adoption is related to the law. Um, Worship, listed here, related to, I'm sorry, glory related to worship. And then covenants are related to the promises. So adoption related to law, worship related to glory, promises related to covenants. I didn't look it up much, but there's something with the the nouns and the way they are listed that that gives hint to this this parallelism here. And and I think we see it. I'm going to go through them really briefly, not, not very long here, to look at these two. So first, adoption and then law. Adoption. Israel, they have the adoption you think, well, Christians were adopted. Well, Deuteronomy 7, 6, 7, verse 6, says this of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it sounds like adoption. They're, they're the original, the adopted people, the call of Abram. And as God's adopted people, God communicates to his adopted people and reveals to them the law, the giving of the law given to Israel. It's a privilege, a privileged revelation from God Almighty to this people that he really called, as we're reading in Exodus, called out of slavery to himself. There's adoption related to giving of the law. Next, glory. You see the next word, glory, related to worship. Think of glory. To them belong the glory. What glory? As to glory, think of this. Exodus 24, verse 17 says of Mount Sinai. It says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Glory. And it didn't just stay on the mountain. Where else? We see it. Exodus chapter 40, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And eventually it fills the temple. Later on, John Murray writes, This glory was the sign of God's presence with Israel and certified to Israel that God dwelt among them and met with them. And parallel to that glory then is, in the sight of glory, worship. Over and over, Israel is called, commanded, worship God. Do not have any other gods. Worship God alone. So people that are adopted, they are given the law. They have God's glory in their midst. They're called to 
worship. What a heritage there is. And you can see the problem now that, man, but they're not, they don't know Christ. You can see the problem, I think, maybe hopefully in Paul. But what a heritage these fellow kinsmen of Paul have. What blessings. And then lastly, there's the covenants. The covenants related to the promises. Earl Blackburn defines a divine covenant as this. Maybe I've used this before in class somewhere. A solemn arrangement divinely imposed which places binding obligations upon the parties of the covenant. It's a solemn arrangement. God initiates covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Moses and then the people of the Exodus, Israel. Makes a covenant with David. We're in the new covenant in Christ even. The covenants are God's, they're God's word to the people. And so I think related, now you can see it, the covenants related to this are the promises, which, which really are the word of God. It's what the covenants are built upon. This promise of God, I will uphold this covenant. It will come to pass. To Paul, in Acts chapter 13, these promises, they reach their fulfillment in Christ. It's actually, if, you wanted, if you're taking notes, you jot down Acts 13, 16 through 52. Now that we've kind of just spent a little time thinking through this, the Israelites, what they have, as you look back in Acts and some of these conversations we'll see in a minute of Stephen, but also of Paul, it's just interesting to see in light Paul preaching to the men of Israel, and yet they wanting to persecute Paul. Some, some come to know Christ, some don't, and they persecute, and you see it there. All right, so there's all these blessings. To them belong adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises. Then verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So there are these patriarchs. And I don't know how many... I don't have a definitive list. Of course, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and I think there's others. They're quite literally the fathers. But it's in relation to these that down the line that this climactic, the climax blessing is here. And who is that? Christ, the Messiah. Peter says boldly, he says in Acts chapter 2, he says that Israel crucified and killed this Jesus. And he points out that David, the patriarch, died, but Jesus did not. Peter concludes in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And those that hear Peter of Israel, they are cut to the heart, and many are saved. It says 3,000 of them are. Later on, you can read about this, those that hear Stephen, they hear him recite a history of Israel, kind of as we're just really briefly thinking through verse 4. And I think it expands, Stephen expands these themes of Paul, and Stephen concludes his speech in Acts chapter 7. In part, he says, you stiff-necked people, maybe he's talking to Israel still, you stiff-necked talking to his people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those 
who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered, delivered by angels and did not keep it. Even Stephen is calling out his own people. But what does Stephen do that is so Paul-like, that is so Christ-like, as Stephen falls to his knees in the midst of now being stoned for what he has just said? He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. You see a similar theme here. I think it's a New Testament theme. Peter, Stephen, Paul loving his people in anguish over their rejection of Christ the Messiah. Notice here at the end of verse 5 the contrast of Christ. Yes, he came according to the flesh. That's said. But Paul asserts, I think what to the Jews, as we read about, was so blasphemous in what Christ would say when he said he was equal with God. This same Christ, Paul asserts here, he is God over all, blessed forever. Again, John Murray, he writes this and he concludes. He says, the chief reason for the apostles' anguish was the rejection on Israel's part of that which brought to fruition the covenantal history which constituted their distinctiveness. The gravity of this rejection was pointed up by the uniqueness of Jesus' person. In other words, the climax of the history of Israel was and is Christ. According to the flesh, He is the God-man. Israel had a history of rejecting Christ, and yet Paul remains in anguish for his people to know him. Verses 1 through 5 that we've just gone through, they are not the whole argument. We've just kind of put our foot in a little bit. It's not all of even what's in chapters 9 through 11. What we do see here in particular in our study, Paul's great sorrow for his people. We see the great blessings even of Israel, Paul's people. But implied behind this, behind Paul's words here, is this separation of Israel from the final, from the fullest, the final promise, the fulfillment of the promise in Christ. What happened so that those to whom such great blessings were given, verse 4, ultimately crucify Christ? So did all the adoption, did all the glory, all the covenants of the law, all the worship, did all the promises fail? And Paul doesn't answer that yet, though again, your eyes are just going to drift to verse 6 and say, no, no, God's, God's word has not failed. Again, we'll look at that next week. Two things to just take away real briefly from these few verses that we've studied. Number one, we've said it before, Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish for his people. He really cared deeply, deeply for those that did not know Christ for his own, willing to be accursed for them for their sake. I think, again, he's a model of Christ. He demonstrates Christ-like love for a people who in large part have rejected Christ. So there's a call for us to do the same. Have that kind of great sorrow, deep, unceasing anguish for those that don't know Christ. Why? Because of the reality of where they are headed. Many of you that are in that anguish understand that and you see that that's why your anguish 
is there because for all intents and purposes, not with God forever. Paul's anguish here, they're still cut off. Number two, the question is for you then. That's kind of thinking of us or us towards others. What about you? What will you do with this Christ? According to the flesh, he's Christ, and he is God overall. What do you do with him? What has God given you? Has he given you a Bible in English? Do you have one? Has he given you a church family to come around and be part of and to encourage in the faith? Has he given Christian teaching here through the week, on the radio, in podcasts? You can listen to it 24-7. So is Jesus thus simply another man who walked on the earth, or is he in your life, is he Christ? Is he overall? For you to live is Christ. Is he your king of kings? Or is he someone just to celebrate at Christmas or maybe Easter, just kind of largely absent from your thoughts? Psalm 2, verse 12, shows us two aspects of this Son, Jesus Christ. It's both wrath and refuge. There's wrath for all who would reject him. There's refuge for those who come to him. May the love of Christ, may it grow and flourish in your heart, your own heart, and then grow and flourish in a love for sinners who are lost. And all the while, we can trust in this Christ who is God over all. Holding, Colossians say, holding all things together, blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray these two things for us as a congregation and as a gathered body of believers, that we too, we would hold to both. We would rejoice always. We would not be anxious, trusting you. And yet, Lord, for those of our own people, maybe our own family, our own coworkers, friends that don't know you, Lord, if, those, if they're here, those in great anguish, comfort them that Paul was in the same spot. And Lord, if if we don't have that type of anguish, that type of grief over sinners heading to an eternity without you in conscious wrath, may you give us that kind of love for sinners to reach out with the gospel. And then, Lord, in our own hearts, I would pray that we too would cherish Christ, that we would speak truth in Christ, we would walk in Christ, we would shovel snow in Christ that what we do, Christ would be seen in all that we do because we love you. We look forward to living with you forever in eternity. Would you just grow that in us? And we don't grow towards you apart from your word. So grow us with a deepening hunger to know you through the infinite blessing of your word that points to Christ. Lead us in this, Lord, by your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.